The Case of the Four-Digit Puzzle Chapter 40 The four-digit puzzle began with Spaghetti for the Blind. It was an inauspicious start, highlighted by a general distress among the inmates at the mid-morning reorganization of the dining room. Fairmount Manor residents had arrived at lunch to find that the usual seating plan had been entirely rearranged in order to take into account the new tables. These were rectangular instead of round, and, to add to the kerfuffle, each table sat eight instead of six. Having inadvertently gone the long way round through Carnation Corridor, Stella was a little late in arriving. She therefore found herself without any sort of an option, sharing a table with the Greek chorus. She was hopeful that Theo would join them, but he had somehow wound up on the far side of the room. She caught a glimpse of him helping a woman to her seat. At Stella's table, the nodders, no, Sally's, opinion of Theo's gentlemanly deed could be read in the purse of her mouth and the crease of her brow. Mad Cassandra Browning was missing as usual. Stella had no idea how Casey survived, unless she took her meals upstairs, or, more likely, simply had her own supply of food and ate cans of baked beans alone in her room. Three tables away, Cheryl was helping Thelma into a chair. At Stella's side, a seat sat empty. Without thinking, she called to Thelma. Thelma's head jerked in the direction of Stella's voice, and she scowled. Some clattery work with her cane ensued, and Cheryl followed Thelma's lead to Stella's table. Our table, Hyalinth nipped Stella's thought short. Lord knew how she did it. The whole room's a cock-up now, Lucille complained. These new tables are far worse than the old ones, too, if they're new, which I doubt. Look, she held up the tablecloth, which had changed since breakfast, from rather good-quality cotton linen to serviceable cotton polyester. Hyalinth inclined her head as she peered underneath. Painted metal, where the old ones were good solid oak, she observed, as the first tables were served their food. Stella corrected her. The old tables were mahogany, bought in the 1960s, I'll bet, when Fairmont opened. Not wonderful quality, but not veneer either. Rosewood, Thelma snapped. The old tables were rosewood with mahogany stain. Not top class, but worth at least 500 each on the antiques market. Refinished, you might get twice that at an auction on a greedy night. In the middle of the buzzing room, Stella and the Greek chorus were struck silence by this speech from the normally taciturn Thelma. The members of the Greek chorus exchanged glances. Stella made herself ready to defend Thelma, but her preparations were unnecessary. Oh, I'm right, Thelma stated flatly. Her cane clattered hollowly, metal on metal, against the table leg. Does anyone want to argue the question? Apparently nobody did. Stella felt unaccountably proud as Thelma folded her hands before her. Thelma added, 
I can't see what we're having to eat. Of course you can't see what we're having, Lucille pointed out. You're blind. Lucille, Stella interjected. But she felt Thelma's cane smack her across the shin. Speak for yourself, Lucille, Thelma said. She patted the placemat in front of her, then took the fork and knife, and finally she put her thin hands across the top of her glass of water. She raised it to her lips and took a trembling sip. Well, won't somebody answer a simple question? Is lunch anything I'll want to eat? We haven't had anything to write home about for months. Iolinth turned to the table behind her and cast an eye on their plates. Children's food again. Peas and carrots, spaghetti, and that powdery white cheese they like to call parmesan. I call it talcum powder, Lucille said. Stella hid her smile. She imagined removing her slip-ons between her bare feet right up on the table, when was entirely agile enough in imagination. Taking the cheese from the little bowls, they served it in and powdering it between her toes. The nodder nodded, her lips tucked between her teeth. For the first time, Stella observed the unhappy droop on the left side of her face, most noticeable at the outer corner of her eye. Of course, the surprise was not that the woman had had a stroke. Stella herself had a rough memory of being diagnosed with a couple of incidents not so long ago before coming to Fairmount Manor. The wonder was that Stella hadn't even thought about the reason why Sally never spoke, but only nodded. This was what came of giving people you didn't like nicknames like the Nodder, she thought. You made them into caricatures in your head, caricatures that only existed to impact negatively on your life. Real people, on the other hand, had problems that aroused our empathy. Stella remembered an old saying that fit the case. It was one of her long-time favorites, and from the ancients as well. In the interest of encouraging a positive theme since dinner conversation tended to be complaint-centered, she repeated the ancient Greek writer's quote aloud, Be kinder than necessary, because everyone you meet is fighting some kind of battle. Shakespeare, Iolinth sighed. Our Stella's got a quote for everything. Quite right, though I wish people would think about others. Lucille's face was the picture of distaste as she watched their plates approach on the little rattling trolley. For example, I'd like to smack those cooks upside their paper hats. Eating spaghetti's no treat for me, I can tell you. All that winding with my iritis, it's not worth the time. Sally nodded. Stella looked sideways at Thelma. How did a blind woman cope with food she couldn't see? How could she find rolling peas and sliding spaghetti? As she worried at the question, plates were set before Stella and Thelma. Stella picked up her fork, watching all the while to see what sort of help she'd be able to offer Thelma. She soon saw that Thelma wouldn't need any help at all. She had figured out exactly how to deal with this challenging meal. Hands folded one over another on the tabletop. Thelma wasn't going to eat a thing. Stella, who had never before sat at Thelma's table, wondered just how many meals the woman had missed. No, let us be forthright and descriptive, Stella instructed herself. 
How many of these substandard meals had Thelma missed? With a pang, she was conscious for the first time of the delicate, fleshless bones of Thelma's wrist and the narrow shoulders under her red jacket. Hyalanth picked up a strand of spaghetti between thumb and finger. I think I'll send mine back. Why? Lucille snapped. You think they've got a tray of filet mignon back there in case we're picky eaters? Quietly, Stella moved Thelma's plate closer to her right hand. But Thelma's mouth tightened, and she moved her hand away. Stella looked down at her own plate. Despite the pale, unhealthy look of the food, she was as hungry as a schoolboy. Sally mashed a few peas with her fork and pushed them around. Stella looked from Lucille to Ireland to Thelma. How to help this proud woman to eat? What a Gordian knot this was. A knot composed of strands of spaghetti. She wondered how Alexander the Great might handle this situation. Tradition had it that he'd simply sliced the Gordian knot in half with his sword. This riddle was far more difficult. Try that, she would like to say to Alexander the Great. Try eating spaghetti when you're blind. Cheryl hurried over, obviously worried. Spaghetti. I can't imagine how this happened. You'd think we'd have more sense. You must eat, Miss Hugh. Let me help you. Not hungry, Thelma said. Well, Cheryl reasoned with Thelma regarding the importance of keeping a healthy body before everything else. Stella sighed. She was good with spaghetti, even at her age, but she could see that the Greek chorus would take any demonstration of skill for arrogance. Once Thelma had given up the struggle and moved off, Thelma said, I am hungry, but I hate it when she helps me. Stella put powdered parmesan on Thelma's noodles and on her own. To lighten the mood at the table, she said, I remember when eating was really difficult. I went to summer camp when I was a girl, and one night when we all arrived at a table, there were no knives or forks at all. Ate with your fingers, did you? Ilith asked. Uncivilized young piglets, Lucille said. Sally nodded. No, Stella felt her cheeks color at the memory. No hands allowed. In fact, the rules were that we had to hold hands around the table, the way we did to say grace, like she felt a strange sort of fear come over her, along with a feeling of being at the center of a world of disapproving eyes. She looked from Ireland to Lucille, from Sally to Cheryl, past the three empty seats at the table and around the dining room. Her heart pounded. Like this, she took hold of Thelma's bony hand on her left. She grasped Ayleth's soft paw on her right. She knew that what she was about to do was unthinkable. But it ought to be unthinkable to serve spaghetti to the blind. Even now, Thelma was patting the table with her left hand as she felt about for her fork. She was hiding her distress, but Stella knew how Thelma would hate the messy work of getting noodles from her plate up to her mouth. They would go all over the table. The Greek chorus, bless their pointed hearts, would comment. Stella's anger rose. She would show the management of Fairmont Manor. Taking a deep breath, Stella dropped her face down to the level of her plate. 
she remembered exactly how to eat spaghetti without using your hands. 1. You had to make a monkey mouth with your lips sticking out. 2. Then you leaned over your plate and sucked, chewed the food into your mouth. As she remembered it, you made quite a bit of noise. And 3. The trick was to do it without getting food up your nose. <laughs> Feeling full of the devil and about 10 years old, Stella put her face down into her plate and ate her spaghetti without using her hands. Chapter 41. An hour later, Stella shut the director's office door behind her. It seemed to her that she was growing further and further from learning the four-digit key code for the front door. Her palms were still damp from her interview with Mrs. Perdita Warren. This interview, regarding what Stella already thought of as the spaghetti incident, had not been satisfactory, neither on her side nor, she believed, on the warden's. There had been what she could only call an excessive use of the interrogative why. Stella had explained why. She pointed out the inequities of spaghetti in a care home. She had talked about the challenges for the blind and those afflicted by arthritis of winding spaghetti around the tines of a fork. She had demonstrated with a pencil she borrowed from the warden's desk. She had explained that putting her face down on the plate to eat without using her hands was a way of bringing attention to Thelma's plate. She finished up with a, A woman like Thelma Hugh should not have to choose between her dinner and her dignity. The warden had taken back her pencil. She had set it on the desk before her and gently asked, But, Mrs. Ryman, would you have eaten that way when you were at home? There were a thousand things that Stella could have said to the woman, but she did not. She stood up and asked a simple question. Mrs. Warren, who makes up the menus and shopping lists for our menus here at Fairmont Manor? The warden coughed. We are always open to menu suggestions, within reason. Stella had been a career educator, so she knew how to stand silently and wait for Mrs. Warren to shift uncomfortably and continue. Mrs. Perdetta Warren shifted in her chair and added, I make the menus, with help. Then why spaghetti? When there are other pastas that are quite easy to eat, like fusilli, penne, Stella found herself at the door with the warden holding it open between them. The director said, one of the best things about living with us, Mrs. Ryman, is that you don't have the burden of meal planning and preparation. Let us plan your healthy menu. It's one of the things we're paid to do. With all the poise she could gather about her, Stella shuffled out of the office and down the hallway. She was so lost in dark thoughts that she found her slip-on shoes had turned her around and led her in the wrong direction. She stood in the unfamiliar hallway for a moment, feeling off-kilter and a little panicky, as if she had followed Wonderland's Alice across the meadow without paying proper attention to rabbit holes. After a few moments of craning this way and that, she took in the color of the walls and discovered she had wandered into Fern Corridor. This was an area of Fairmont Manor 
she didn't frequent because the greek chorus had their rooms here all three would be in corridor park now she believed like stella they eschewed the after-dinner snooze along with all other offered activities so there was little danger of running into them here in their home territory just as there was no way of avoiding them in corridor park around her in fern corridor doors stood propped open and doors stood closed this looked exactly like her own daffodil corridor but for the unfamiliar photos tacked on to the doors as well the sponge painted patterns on the walls in fern were green rather than yellow as she turned to leave she noticed nearby a door standing ajar naked of all decoration even the brass slot meant to hold a name tag was empty stella knew what this meant and although she had no idea who out of the two hundred or so souls at fairmount manor one was missing she was very sorry to have lost her or him that thought stopped her cold did theo live in fern corridor no surely he lived in hydrangea or did he suddenly uncertain where anybody lived she put her hand to her throat then in her spin she remembered seeing theo at lunch today yes today he was he was all right she repeated it to herself reassuringly theo was all right reassured she was about to leave fern for other parts when from inside the room with the half-open door there came a thudding noise this was an articulated sort of thud suggesting that first a torso and then a series of limbs had hit the floor stella pushed through the half-open door to see who might need help her gaze took in the bare mattress on the bed the bureau and window sill standing empty of all displays but the room was not entirely empty on the floor near the bed sprawled mad cassandra browning she was prone but not prostrated decked out in a magenta track shoot her long horny feet bare as usual as thelma watched she got herself up onto hands and knees i am an angel cassandra told stella fallen from heaven from between hanks of gray striped hair cassandra offered her a devilish smile stella hurried forward are you all right shall i call somebody she asked did you fall out of bed let me stop mad cassandra barked well stella thought the woman was on all fours of course she would bark i am not in distress stella urged cassandra to get up i'm trying to stand cassandra said on my head it's many years since i last did it but i'm sure the trick will come back to me she bent her elbows and lowered her head so that her tangled mane lay on the floor she appeared to be trying to raise her bony left knee onto her pointy left elbow when stella called her name she paused and put her knee back down on the floor she sat back on her narrow behind and gazed up at stella come on try it with me stella shook her head cassandra don't be foolish you're 88 years old why do you think you need to stand on your head why do men climb everest cassandra countered they don't not from fairmount manor 
Stella replied. Stella herself had never stood on her head. Another missed opportunity that could never be regained, like becoming a radio disc jockey or marrying for money. Cassandra said, I used to be able to stand on my head, and this is my exact same body that I did it with. She held one hand up and looked at the front and back and then set it back down on the floor. The human body enjoys being upside down. Stella held on to the foot of Mad Cassandra's bed and lowered herself to the floor. She was again struck by the emptiness of the room, the complete absence of any personal touch, even more so than in Stella's own deliberately ascetic Room 34. Poor Cassandra. Stella had never heard of anyone from outside visiting her. Perhaps she had no relatives, or perhaps, like King Lear, in his madness, she had driven them all away. Stella put the top of her head down on the floor. She felt as if she was upside down. But she was not about to start climbing up onto her elbows. This far, she thought, no further. This isn't your room, is it, Cassandra? Stella sat up again, feeling breathless. Perhaps Cassandra had wandered in here, as Stella had, and been overcome with a wish to stand on her head. It was perfectly in character. I have no room of my own, Mad Cassandra explained. Stella took such nonsense in stride. She was used to the ebb and flow of nonsense from the mouths of everyone she talked to these days. Even the staff, she thought suddenly, put a grey mop wig on Mrs. Perdetta Warren during the recent interview regarding the spaghetti incident, and to the uninformed listener, she had sound as nonsensical as Cassandra. Sure you have a room, Casey. We all do. I don't remember your corridor, though. On an afterthought, Stella asked, Did you see me eating spaghetti without any hands at dinner today? There now, Stella thought. She'll like that. We're both crazy together. But Cassandra must not have been listening, for she had wriggled herself halfway under the bed. I've got a present for you, she grunted, and began to wiggle back out again. What kind of present would there be under a stripped-down bed in an empty room? Stella prayed to heaven there was nothing dead or insectile under there that she would be expected to touch. But Cassandra, like a long, skinny baby, emerged. Breach was working herself out. Her struggle was exacerbated because she held something in either hand. Stella stared. Two shoes. She looked at Cassandra's feet. She had never seen her other than barefoot. Indeed, judging by the clean rubber soles and brand new laces, these shoes appeared never to be of to have been worn. They were beautiful shoes. Fawn leather. With laces. For you, Cassandra puffed. From me. Oh. Stella should have asked another question of some kind, but she didn't. She reached out and took the shoes from Cassandra. The leather was soft as a baby's caboose. With eager hands, Cassandra helped her out of her slip-ons and into the leather shoes. Stella's own hands were trembling, so Cassandra tied them up. Voila, Mad Cassandra said, sitting back with her hands flat on her narrow magenta-clad thighs. Bob's your uncle. 
And Fanny's your aunt, Stella said automatically. Thank you, Casey. I couldn't have wished for nicer shoes. I feel just like Cinderella. Cassandra threw back her head and laughed. She said, Shoes aren't magic, silly Stella girl, but they will take you where you want to go. Outside. I want to go outside. Wishing harder than ever, Stella got to her feet. Come on, Casey, let's go visit Thelma in Corridor Park. We could use some new and original conversation. Cassandra appeared to weigh Stella's invitation. Okay, she said at last. Stella walked seven poised and silent steps in her new shoes along Fern Corridor. When she looked up to thank her again, Cassandra had vanished without a sound. Stella looked down at her new shoes. She remembered the first pair her mother had ever let her pick out for herself. She was nine. They had been red leather with a strap held by a black button across each instep. She had loved those shoes and tried not to grow her feet any bigger for as long as possible. And now she loved these fawn ones almost as much. No, as much. But from where would Cassandra have procured them? Mad Cassandra was so unpredictable that she would never be allowed to go on one of the Saturday jaunts to the mall for walk and shop. There was only one place she could have found them. The shoes must be from the effects closet. These were a dead woman's shoes, and Stella loved them.